Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today. We thank you uh, for the events of this past week that you have led us through, that you have taught us things through, that you have revealed more of yourself through. We thank you that you have never left us. You are with us every step of the way. You always pour out your peace and your comfort and your love upon us. We don't deserve it, but you do it anyway because you love us. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is always timeless and true. No matter what time period we're in, no matter what culture we're living in, it is always the truth, your truth, that we can found our lives on. So Lord, as we go through your word, I pray that your spirit would go forth and Work in our hearts, open our spiritual eyes to see what you have for us this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Cappadocia region of Turkey in Eastern Europe, in 1963, an anonymous man was doing some renovations on his home. And while in his basement, the Turkish man swung a sledgehammer to one of his walls and created a small chasm in the wall. Upon the realization that his chickens kept disappearing into this chasm and were never seen again, the man took his sledgehammer and kept breaking apart that wall bit by bit until he was met with a shocking discovery. Behind the wall in the basement of his house, he discovered a long and well-hewn passageway. Like something out of a C.S. Lewis novel, huh? When archaeologists uh, started uncovering more, it was discovered that there was an entire underground city known as Derinkuyu that existed under Cappadocia. Derinkuyu had existed since about 400 years before Christ and was inhabited by several different groups of people over the span of 2,000 years, from the Phrygians to the Persians to the Christians to modern Greeks until the 1920s. The subterranean city could house 20,000 people undetected for months at a time, making it a great hideout when under attack or facing persecution. In fact, it included levels of 18 stories and 280 feet deep, tunnels that stretched for hundreds of miles with innumerable cave homes, dry food storage, cattle stables, schools, wineries, and even a chapel. It's mind-blowing trying to wrap your head around the existence of this gigantic underground city which had been completely forgotten about for 40 years until one guy swung his sledgehammer into a wall in his basement. Eventually, more than 600 entrances to Derinkuyu were discovered in private homes in the area and the entire underground network has been open to the public for exploration since 1969. Now, this is not encouragement for every guy here to go smashing down walls in your basements with sledgehammers, as I guarantee you'll cause more destruction than discovery. But 
But imagine if this guy hadn't wanted to renovate his home, but more importantly, hadn't let his curiosity and interest at why his chickens were mysteriously disappearing drive him to dig more and more until the first tunnel of this vast city was revealed. In our passage this morning, a cursory reading of these verses would reveal some beneficial truth But as we'll see, if we allow our curiosity and interest to drive us to do a little bit more digging, we're going to unearth a lot more incredible revelation than if we had just left it alone. We're going to be picking back up this morning in verse 35 of chapter 7. Jesus has just reiterated once again that the window for both the religious leaders and those seeking to arrest him is quickly closing for them to put their faith in him for their salvation. The way he explained that was in verses 33 through 34, which we covered last week. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Time's running out. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. We looked at last week how Jesus meant this in a couple of ways, both related to each other and both equally true. Number one, Jesus' fellow Jewish people would seek seek for him still in the grave, and they wouldn't find him there. And number two, post-resurrection, Jesus would ascend back up into heaven to be from where he came from. God the Father, and therefore heaven. If the people did not accept him as their Messiah and Savior from their sin, they would not be able to go to where Jesus would ascend to. It didn't matter how religious they thought they were. They would not make it to heaven without repentance and humbly surrendering to Jesus. But as was their problem this whole time, as one biblical scholar noted, the people are still thinking only in earthly and physical terms. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. And because the people's spiritual eyes are still shut, they're only seeing what Jesus is speaking about in earthly and human ways. And that's what brings us to verse 35 of our chapter this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verses 35 and 36. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to that passage, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 7, verse 35 and verse 36. We pick up and we read this. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Let's dig a little bit into what they're getting at here with the dispersion and going to the Greeks, teaching the Greeks and all that. When Alexander the Great swept through this area hundreds of years before this, the areas including Judea, Galilee, and the surrounding area, he implemented his policy of forcing everyone in his conquered lands to learn Greek culture and Greek language. That policy was known as Hellenization. 
We know that God uses everything in his plan, like we talked about last week. And so it's not coincidental at all that everyone in the ancient Near East, Jewish or Gentile, knew how to speak common Greek. When the Romans conquered these same areas, they didn't forcibly impose Latin on these lands, and so common Greek remained the international language in the area. So when Jewish people would move out of Palestine, they would operate by using the common Greek language. In the Jewish leaders and crowds' minds, when they heard Jesus say that he would be going where they couldn't find him, they automatically assumed he meant that he would leave Palestine to go to these Jewish people who spoke Greek throughout the Roman Empire. The term dispersion does not refer to any single one movement of Jewish people migrating to other parts of the empire, but generally to all the Hellenized and Greek-speaking Jewish people spread throughout the empire. In verses 35 through 36, we have the Jewish people wrongly thinking Jesus meant that he would transition his ministry to outside of Palestine and start with the Greek-speaking Jewish people throughout the rest of the empire. Furthermore, what do we see in addition to those Greek-speaking Jewish people in the dispersion among the Greeks? We see the Greeks themselves. Are the people only... Uh, is John only referring to people that are from a Greek ethnicity and Greek culture here? Anybody paying attention? Anybody still awake out there? Okay. No, he's not referring to just people uh, of a Greek ethnicity and Greek culture. Paul refers to anyone who wasn't ethnically Jewish as a Greek when he was talking about the new Holy Spirit-led life in Christ, when he wrote a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So anybody who wasn't of Jewish ethnicity was automatically a Greek. That was just another term for a Gentile. So the Jewish people in the temple in this morning's passage vocalized this possibility that Jesus meant that he would leave Palestine and go to the Greek-speaking Jewish people throughout the empire and also teach the Gentiles. The way this is phrased, as one biblical scholar pointed out, how people are asking the question is in this way. Surely that's not what he meant when he said this, right? Because what, what would that mean in their human minds? That he wasn't really the Jewish Messiah there to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and set up his kingdom if he's just going to up and leave Judea as a whole. And in their minds, that's an impossibility. Ironically, pretty soon after Jesus' resurrection, that would be the mission given from Jesus to his disciples, which they would follow through with. Jesus commanded his disciples just before he ascended to heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What the people in the temple that day cast aside as a possibility ended up being the world's only hope. And our only hope today of hearing about salvation in Jesus. Verse 37 brings a transition 
to the experience in the temple that day. So we're going to read verses 37 through 38. Now on the feast, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John starts out verse 37 with, on the last day. On the last day of what? His Apple TV Plus trial? (laughs) Obviously not. We've been referring to the Feast of Tabernacles throughout the whole experience of why Jesus was in Jerusalem here and how he ended up in the temple teaching. The spark that led to all this arguing, misunderstanding, and attempted arrest by both the crowd and the Sanhedrin-backed temple guard. The Feast of Tabernacles lasted for seven days. We know that Jesus waited for a bit before even going to Jerusalem to bring his required sacrifices to avoid the fame his brothers wanted for him and themselves, then shows up and ends up teaching in the temple, after which there's an implied meeting of the Sanhedrin that gives the temple guard authority to arrest him. They show up, and now we've come to the last day, the great day of the feast, with Jesus back in the temple. On that last day of the Festival of Tabernacles, what happens? Well, we just read that. Jesus cries out in the temple and says two things. One, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to him and drink. And two, referring to a scripture, he talks about rivers of living water originating from one's innermost being. Now, here's where we connect back to our opening illustration about digging into the scripture and discovering deeper revelation here. That will give us the understanding we need to see here. This is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three required feasts that every male Uh, in the Jewish religion was to observe by bringing the sacrifices and offerings required by law to the temple. In addition, every man was to build a temporary structure or a tabernacle or a booth to live in during those seven days to remember and commemorate the provision of God for Israel during their 40 years of wandering around the wilderness. But there's more to that feast The two other required feasts, Passover and Pentecost, have been fulfilled by the death of Jesus on Passover as the Passover and atonement sacrifices and the post-resurrection and post-ascension outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. The Feast of Tabernacles is the only one of these three required feasts to not be fulfilled yet and is furthermore connected the most to end times events and specifically the messianic kingdom on earth. This is why Jesus says, as the scripture said. The prophet Zechariah gives the most detailed and graphic description of what will happen surrounding the return of Christ to earth. This is not the same event as Uh, in end times theology as the rapture. It's not the same event. In summary of everything leading up to what Zechariah describes in chapter 14 is this. 
at any point, even five seconds from now, could take place the end times event known as the rapture. And what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus will partially come back, but stay among the clouds, not fully returning to earth yet. He will call up all those who put their faith in him for their salvation, both those who had died before that event and all those still alive. All believers in Jesus will be given glorified bodies and will be joined to Jesus forever from that moment on. Soon after that event, the Antichrist will come to full global power and sign a peace treaty with Israel. Not only is that important because it's what prophetically kicks off the seven-year Great Tribulational period in the entire world, but it's important to our passage this morning. The Great Tribulational period on earth is what is described in Old Testament prophecy as God pouring out his wrath upon the earth for its thousands of years of evil. God will get his payback. God will get his justice. Since the New Testament explains that believers in Jesus are no longer objects of God's wrath, we are rescued from this time period by the rapture that we just talked about previous to this. Now, pertinent to this morning's passage, Halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years in, the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel and set himself in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem as the Messiah and as God, as described in Old Testament prophecy and 2 Thessalonians 2. At that point, there will be an unprecedented time of global and world government-sponsored persecution of God's chosen people and anyone who put their trust in Jesus up to that point. All of this will culminate at the end of those seven years to what Zechariah describes in chapter 14. At that time, the armies of the nations of the earth, led by the Antichrist, will attack Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 describes that graphic and heartbreaking attack, and the world's armies will be halfway successful. And just when it looks like all hope is lost, something shocking will happen. Revelation describes it like this. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful, and true, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast, or the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist, and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That is a much different description of Jesus than we may be used to, isn't it? This is coming. Zechariah 14 describes the exact same event when he prophesies, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, forming a very large valley. And you will flee by the valley of of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Right. So what do we have prophesied for us? Taken all together in prophecy. We have that when the armies of the world think they're victorious over Jerusalem, Jesus himself, armored and riding a brilliantly white horse, will burst out of heaven, set his feet on the Mount of Olives, split it in two to provide escape for the rest of God's people still in Jerusalem, annihilate the world's armies, throw the Antichrist and his false prophet into the lake of fire, and Satan will be bound at this time as well, I might add. Where have we been all this time? With him caught up to be with Jesus at the moment of the rapture, reveling in his presence in heaven during the whole time the world is ravaged during the seven years of tribulation, and then right behind him when he bursts out of heaven to annihilate the armies, to annihilate the armies of the world who have attacked Jerusalem, as Revelation 19 says. Victorious, King Jesus will set up his earthly messianic kingdom, the one which all the people during his first coming were trying to force him to set up then and reign from Jerusalem, ushering in a thousand years of perfect justice, peace, and abundance unlike this world has ever seen. What does Zechariah say will mark the beginning of this messianic kingdom? And on that day, Living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. You see where I'm going with this yet? Just as Jesus used Jacob's well in Samaria to teach the Samaritan woman about living water back in John 4, Jesus uses the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles to once again bring the emphasis back to living water and the living water that only he can give. We just read that the messianic millennial kingdom will be marked by living water bursting out of Jerusalem, a river of living water, and will be the origin of the time of unprecedented agricultural abundance. Remember, what is also directly connected to this same messianic millennial kingdom? The Feast of Tabernacles. 
after Jesus' global government is set up, this is the global expectation of all of the natural inhabitants of the earth. That is, either all those believers who didn't get the mark of the beast were spared from the delusion that the Antichrist was God, therefore didn't join the Antichrist's army in attacking Jerusalem, survived the tribulation, or weren't killed at Jesus' return and entered the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. This is just one of the expectations for them. Then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that came against Jerusalem, all those non-military people, will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Why would King Jesus impose this on all those who survived those past seven years and entered the millennial kingdom in their physical and natural bodies? Because the Feast of Tabernacles was also known as the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Harvest. Since it was connected to the fall harvest, it celebrated both God's provision during the wilderness wandering years and God's provision for that year's fall harvest. Just as the harvest was gathered from out in the fields and brought all together, would all those who lived in the world be gathered from out in the world and brought together once a year to remind them who their king and savior was. Here's what I'm getting at. Here is Jesus on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, with everything that that feast already meant and what it would continue to mean, especially during the Messianic Millennial Kingdom. And Jesus takes another reference from that same end times prophetic chapter, living water, and connects it to himself. Remember, when Jesus' brothers wanted him to enter Jerusalem. How do they want him to enter it? They wanted him to enter it with an entourage and pyrotechnics and a DJ blasting dance anthems to get everyone hyped up about him as the Messiah because it was the prophetically and messianically emphasized Feast of Tabernacles. How did Jesus respond? No! And went secretly. But in his own way here, Jesus does make reference to himself and the Feast of Tabernacles, connected Messianic kingdom. But he does it through the reference to living water in connection to Zechariah 14. Why? Well, exactly because of what John explains in verse 39 of John chapter 7. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The prophesied millennial kingdom, living water, was said to be the origin of earthly and fruitful abundance. Jesus expands that earthly and human understanding of it to also being the source of spiritual life and fruitful abundance. But what is the spiritual living water that Jesus expands that prophetic understanding to? The Holy Spirit. As John describes at the point of Jesus saying these words in the temple that day, about six months before his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit had not been given yet. 
At the time John wrote this gospel, the Holy Spirit had been given by Jesus and the Father and had been given out for about 60 years at that point. We know from the book of Acts that 50 days after Jesus' death on Passover was the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Within that 50 days, Jesus had ascended back to heaven. On that Pentecost day, the 120 believers huddled in an upper room in Jerusalem for Pentecost and praying were given, for the very first time, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ever since that time, ever, every person who comes to God in repentance of their sin, taking Jesus' death and resurrection as having paid for their sin as a substitute on their behalf and taking him as king over the rest of their lives is automatically and immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit. What are we given when we're given the Holy Spirit at that point of repentance and salvation? In short, we're given God himself, the third person of the Trinity, who makes a home within our innermost being, and glimpses of heaven are opened up for us here on earth. Jesus says in our passage this morning that anyone who comes to him, he'll give the living water that flows out of their innermost being. In Zechariah, the living water flows out of the holy city to give life to the city and ultimately the rest of the world. In John, the living water flows out of the body made holy by the blood of Christ to give life to that body and ultimately the rest of the world. When Jesus described this very same living water to the Samaritan woman in John 4, he described it as a bubbling spring. And if you think about the millennial kingdom living water in connection to the Feast of Tabernacles, that would also have to be an unending and bubbling spring, and thus a spring of water. The Holy Spirit indwelling us as believers is also an unending and bubbling source and spring of living water. We get God himself dwelling within us now. And someday, we will dwell with all three members of the Trinity in perfection. When we are given the Holy Spirit, we are given life. We are given him as a seal, a down payment on the heavenly home that we know awaits us and Jesus is preparing for us right now. We are given a gentle voice that reminds us exactly of who we are in our darkest of times. Children of Almighty God, bought with the blood of the Son of God. We are given the beginnings of a lifetime of transformation in every area of our lives, physically, mentally, psychologically, and spiritually. In that transformation, we are given freedom from the power and effects of sin and addiction, redemption of every past trauma and heartbreak, and ultimately a way of looking at the world and processing through everything in it that the world simply cannot understand. We are given the surpassing peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are given the power to boldly proclaim how others can have this same living water of the Holy Spirit. We are given the strength to go on through each day, no matter how difficult, to bring glory to God. We are given qualities of God that we could not ever hope to manufacture ourselves. Love, to love God and to 
love anyone and everyone regardless of who they are. Joy, to have joy even in the most painful of circumstances. Peace, to have a steady reliance of peace on God and his plan no matter how confusing things are. Patience, to respond to each and every situation and person with God-glorifying understanding, empathy, and patience. Kindness, to bear the same kind of grace towards others that God has on us every day. Goodness, to seek to please God by living according to his moral standards of goodness. Faithfulness, to seek to be faithful to God firstly, faithful to his word, faithful in marriage as an illustration of his relationship to us, and faithful in everything God has called us to do. Gentleness, to deal with people in a peaceful way. And self-control, to be given the strength to overcome sin, temptation, and worldly thinking and living. We are given spiritual gifts to employ in giving glimpses of God's future kingdom here on earth and in Jesus' church. We are given the enlightenment to see what God intended to reveal to us in his word. In short, we are given everything and every source of power to live the life God has called us to through the indwelling Holy Spirit and him as our living water. As Jesus references in verse 38 of this morning's passage, though, my question is this. How much are we drinking from it? How much are we going through this life parched? How much are we drinking from the living water of the Holy Spirit? How much are we still relying on our own way of understanding the world? Our own power in circumstances? Our own strength in trials? Our own wisdom in problems. How much are we seeking the Holy Spirit to be our power, strength, and to reveal to us the wisdom of God? How much are we surrendering every area of our lives to the Holy Spirit's transformation? How much are we seeking the Holy Spirit to be our source of joy, peace, hope, and life? We've already been given the Holy Spirit as our source. We don't need to wait any longer. If you've repented of your sin and taken Jesus as your Savior and King, you already have him. You already have this river of living water bubbling up. How much are we drinking from it every day? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. One who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us about what will happen in the future of this world that we live in. This dark, fallen, broken apart world. We know that you have a plan. We know that you're orchestrating everything that is going on in the world right now to align with that plan. And we know that you are working out every detail of our lives according to your plan. We thank you that you have given us this treasure, this treasure of the Holy Spirit, this treasure of living water that we can come to every day and drink deeply from to be that joy and that peace and that wisdom and that hope and that life. 
So, Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of that, that we would use it as the gift that it really is, that we would live our lives the way that you want us to, only through drinking of that living water, only through relying on the power and peace and hope of the Holy Spirit. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.